Hello and welcome back to the function room. And this time it's about growing up or rather growing down. Right now, we assume that all sectors of the economy need to grow all the time, regardless of whether or not we actually need them. And we propose this is a crazy assumption to make in the middle of ecological crisis. Instead, we should decide what things we actually want to expand uh, and what sectors are clearly destructive and socially less necessary and should be scaled down. That's my guest, Dr. Jason Hickel, author of Less is More. And I'm an economic anthropologist and political ecologist, and I, I do research on questions of global inequality and also... He's a proponent of degrowth, a word that I used to think sounded like a way of avoiding saying another word, like reduction or recession. Growth is a good word, right? It's apart from skin tags that you get on your belly. Growth is good, isn't it? So I would like to just get taller than I am now because I'm really small now. So if I could just get a little bit taller, then I could be fine. And as you've heard from Ruby, her idea of growth is kind of the same as mine. You know, it's mathematically a good thing. Everything goes up. Populations, economies grow. People get better off, don't they? We want numbers to go upwards. We got our minuses on the left, and then we move to the right, in in the good direction, off to the positives. Time goes forward. Things get better. There is one thing that if if everything kept getting bigger, there wouldn't be room for it on the planet. Actually, that's a good point, Ruby. No, we don't grow forever, and... What about stuff, then? Do you like to have more and more stuff, more things. One time I was really jealous because Lily got the new Barbie doll. So I would just like to get what Lily gets. So if Lily gets a new toy, then I should get a new toy. But other than that, I think I have enough stuff. You have enough stuff. So if nobody got more things, nobody else got more things near you, would it be easier to not need new things all the time? It would, but if anybody else like needed a new thing and we didn't, then it would be fine for them to get it. That's quite wise. Have you been reading political ecology books without supervision again, you scamp? So let's dive into my chat with Jason Hickel. This is a bit longer than other podcasts because stuff around degrowth and whether it's a good idea or a bad bad idea, it's really contentious. There are a lot of people who also want to try and prevent climate change or even more climate change, who disagree bitterly with Jason and other degrowth supporters. So I wanted to make sure that I gave it enough time to tease it out. So it gets into a bit of detail. For Matt's fans... Uh, the main maths here is a little bit about exponential growth and how big things get very quickly if they continue growing. Also challenging how we assume that growth is inevitable. And maybe that's rooted in the way we learn our sums and our maths. But first of all, what is degrowth? I think it's important that we start by recognizing that we're in the middle of a crisis of ecological breakdown, which is sort of accelerating. And this is being driven overwhelmingly by excess resource use and energy use in rich countries specifically. 92% of emissions in excess of the safe planetary boundary, or 350 parts per million concentration of CO2 in the atmosphere, have been caused by rich countries in the global north. Rich countries 
consume in the region of four times in excess of what um, scientists consider to be a sustainable level of material use. All of this ecological damage is disproportionately harming poor countries. This is true in terms of the, the consequences of climate breakdown hit poor countries hardest. And resource use, like excess resource use in rich countries, is largely appropriated from extraction in poor countries. And so the damage happens in those resource frontiers, the forests of the Amazon in Indonesia and the mines of the Congo and so on. So right off the bat, we have to understand this is a, that this crisis is playing out along colonial lines. And it entails the colonization or appropriation of atmospheric commons for the enrichment of a few nations and the appropriation of resources in the global south for the enrichment of northern consumers. So against that background, uh, degrowth is very simple, actually. It calls for rich countries to abandon growth as a policy objective and reduce excess resource and energy use to bring the economy back into balance with the living world in a safe, just, and equitable way. And crucially, ecological economists argue that this can be done in a way that actually improves people's lives. Right now, we assume that all sectors of the economy need to grow all the time, regardless of whether or not we actually need them. And we propose this is sort of a, um, this is a crazy assumption to make in the middle of, uh, of ecological crisis. Instead, we should decide what things we actually want to expand so be smarter about this, right? Public transportation, renewable energy, public education, things like that, vaccines, whatever. Uh, and what sectors are clearly destructive and socially less necessary and should be scaled down. So the production of SUVs, private jets, industrial beef, advertising, fast fashion, the military industrial complex, the practice of planned obsolescence by which corporations make our products uh, in such a way that they're designed to break down to increase product turnover, et cetera, et cetera, right? Obviously, there are huge portions of our economic production that are irrelevant to human needs and actually, uh, in many ways, make our lives worse, right? So the key thing here is just to shift the economy uh, to focus on meeting human needs rather than to focus on uh, elite consumption and capital accumulation. Growth could happen as a byproduct, but pursuing growth just to fixate on we were 100% last year, now we're 102% isn't that good uh, in its own right. That, you know, we get taller, we babies turn into adults, tre uh, seeds turn into trees, so therefore, an economies should just grow for the sake of it. Is is Are we kind of addicted to that? Yeah, so clearly, right. Uh, obviously, we want some things to expand, as I've described. If we decide that we need better healthcare systems or better vaccines, let's, let's work on doing that. And if that entails growth then, you know, in, in that sector, then that's totally fine. The, the, the problem that we point to here is this assumption that aggregate GDP should expand at an exponential rate <laughs> perpetually, right, which has just become, you know, really deeply ingrained in our in our discourse. Um, and even even jumping in there on the, the idea of the exponent, I mean, if you, we tend to forget that if you grow by 2% every year, soon you will double uh, within a generation. Is that right? Yeah, exactly. This is so important. This is something that I think mathematicians understand, which most people just totally fail to. And we, we, we kind of got a taste of this during the coronavirus epidemic, right? Um, people very quickly had a, a sort of uh, a brutal lesson in the power of exponential growth uh, because it looks like a really small rate of increase, but suddenly it overwhelms your entire country in a very short period of time. So yeah, so um, so globally, the target is about 3% per year. That's the global average sort of usual growth rate. And that's what politicians aim for. Um, now, okay, so 3% so per year means doubling something every 23 years. That's a really rapid rate of increase. So 
to, to sort of paint a, a picture of this, if you were to take the global economy in the year 2000, right? So not poor, quite a large booming yeah. economy. Think about all the commercial activity that's happening in that year. Um, and then imagine that growing at 3% per year. That means that by the end of that century, the end of this century, it's 20 times larger. The global economy is 20 times larger than it was in 2000. So that's like 20 global economies, right? And the end of the next century, uh, it's 370 times larger. So that's 370 existing global economies. It's extraordinary. Um, so now this might not be a problem, of course, if growth was just plucked out of thin air, uh, but it's not. Uh, it's tightly coupled to resource use and energy use. And this, again, is something that mathematicians have recognized for decades. Um, uh, and this is a problem because global resource and energy use are already driving overshoot of, of planetary boundaries and causing ecological breakdown, right? So now in response to this, the dominant narrative is to say, okay, we see this as a problem, but all we need to do in response is to make growth green, right? So in other words, yeah. let's continue to pursue economic growth, which is the only thing we know how to do, while at the same time reducing resource use and energy use, which we can accomplish just by making our technology more efficient, okay? Now, this is a really, this is a, a very compelling, comforting narrative, and I grew up repeating this as well. <laughs> But unfortunately, it has no empirical grounding uh, in the scientific literature. Um, in fact, the scientific literature is strongly against it uh, for two basic reasons. There's sort of two main issues with this narrative. The first is that all existing studies that we have conclude that GDP growth cannot plausibly be absolutely decoupled from resource use. Okay, so And that's true even under very high efficiency conditions. The reason is because efficiency improvements allow you to achieve a relative decoupling, Okay, so which means you get more GDP per unit of resources. Um, and this happens all the time, right? Because we're always improving our technology. But in a growth-oriented system like capitalism, the gains from efficiency improvements are then leveraged to expand the process of production and consumption. Um, and this generates what we call rebound effects, which wipe out any absolute reductions. Okay, so you can, I mean, an example is very simple. You can think about, say, Coca-Cola figures out a way, a, a way to make its uh, aluminum cans with, you know, 10% less aluminum. This briefly reduces their aluminum use, but then they use the savings from that to expand the process of advertising, break into new markets, produce more uh, cans of Coca-Cola, and ultimately this drives their total resource use up despite the efficiency gains or even because of the efficiency gains. Um, so that's the, that's the problem there with resource use. The second problem has to do with climate change. Now, obviously, we know that it's possible to absolutely decouple GDP from emissions. Okay, And your listeners will know this can be done simply by switching to renewable energy. That's easy enough. And of course, several rich countries, including the UK, have already accomplished this to a certain extent, rising GDP despite falling uh, emissions. Um, the problem is that we're on a time, we're on a budget, right? The carbon budget. Um, we have to get to zero um, uh, fast enough to stay within the carbon budget for 1.5 or 2 degrees. And that is not feasible to do if we continue to pursue growth at the same time. And the reason is because the more we grow, the more energy we use, okay, and the more energy we use, the more difficult it is to cover that energy demand with renewables in the short time we have left. So basically, growth makes the job a lot harder and probably impossible. And that's why we failed over the past several decades to make much progress. So yeah, so, so these conclusions have been reaffirmed several times over the past few years in the scientific literature. Um, 
And so green growth theory really falls apart, uh, and it's time that we take a different approach. Even looking at the simple sums and saying the economy doubles every 23 years, it's 20 times bigger after 100 years, we have X number of years to do this. Although there's hugely complicated mathematics and theory, I'm sure, involved in all of the dynamic systems that make a planet and make an economy, Mm. what's weird is that uh, the amount of magical thinking that happens when it comes to how, what we need to do by a certain date. There are very simple back-of-the-envelope sums you could do about why we're headed on a particular track, and yet we kind of refuse to do them. Like, I I don't want to think about an economy 20 times bigger by 100 years, but yet that's what the numbers, very simple numbers, tell tell you. Yeah, no, this is it is fascinating, actually. Like, like, what explains the intransigence of growthists' narratives in the face of of scientific uh, findings, right? So it's it is really kind of the ideology of growth against um, empirical reality, uh, and and I think I mean and uh, you know people have discussed this ad nauseum, but but my take is basically that growth is a very powerful ideological word. In reality, what does growth really represent? It does not represent an increase in value or well-being. Okay, uh, that's a fallacy. We can discuss that. It represents, in reality, what is it really? It's it's an it's an increase in aggregate commodity production. Okay, so goods and services that are bought and sold in the market, measured in terms of their prices. So what that means is that a hundred dollars of tear gas is equivalent to a hundred dollars of vaccines. That's what we're dealing with here, right? And of course, we know that it's also, as I just described, linked to resource extraction, and it entails labor exploitation and commodification of public services. You know, all of that contributes to growth. That's all packaged into growth, and all of which can quite often be destructive to not only ecology, but also to human communities who might be exploited in this process. So if we were clear-eyed about this, we would say, given those complexities, we should clearly be careful about how much of this we do. Okay? Some of it is clearly useful. Some of it is clearly destructive. Uh, but instead, it all gets lumped into this category of growth. And the framing of growth is extremely powerful. Uh, the words sound so natural, so good, right? Children grow, uh, you know, as you pointed out. Children grow, plants grow, we grow in maturity, et cetera, et cetera. So of, of course we want growth. And so anything that promises to give growth, we sort of line up calling for more of it, regardless of whether it's sort of good or bad. And, and you're coming along with this degrowth word. D is never good. Why are you putting a D in front of the lovely so, growth word? Is there an ideological battleground even in the word itself? Growth is positive, degrowth negative, you know, in the number line. The positive numbers are to the right, on the you know on the right hand side of salvation. Right. Off to the left are are the the weirdos and the negatives. And even the even the word like has it has it been a struggle within the movement to find a word which encapsulates what you're trying to do? Do you do you look at degrowth yeah. and go, shit? I wish I wasn't saddled with this word. I need to think of a word. <laughs> Okay, this is a this is a great question, and I'm looking forward to discussing it. So, um, so if we start from the assumption that growth is just good things, uh, you know, and welfare and la la, then of course the word degrowth sounds negative. Um, but I would contend that the problem here is not the word degrowth, but rather the word the, our, our our false under, our sort of Pollyanna ish understanding of what growth is. So once we understand that growth is not just simplistically good, like once we recognize that past a certain point it becomes a problem like cancer, right? Like that's a kind of growth we don't want, okay? Then degrowth is suddenly a very sensible and positive thing, uh, right? So, so, so in fact, D words are not automatically negative. Um, so take the word decolonization. Yeah. Once you understand that colonization is bad, 
then calling for decolonization is obviously a good thing. Now, of course, you first have to convince people that colonization is bad, which, you know, several hundred years ago, or even a hundred years ago, uh, most Europeans would disagree with you. <laughs> okay, so you have to have that battle. You have to stand for decolonization, calling for something that for most people sounds uh, like it's bad, when in fact, you're going to contend that this is important to do. Um, but also things like decommodification, you know, or de-escalation. There's lots of D words that we use to point to what's wrong uh, um, and why it needs to stop, right? So I think that, like, look, consider it this way. Like, growth is not the same as progress. Uh, we should define what progress is. What do we actually want to achieve? We want to achieve high levels of human development, right? Good wages, uh, good healthcare outcomes, et cetera, et cetera improvement in human consciousness and education and wisdom and so on, while reversing ecological breakdown and bringing our economy to a point where it operates in balance with the living world. If we understand progress this way, then it might become clear that in order to achieve that progress, we actually need to abandon growth. Uh, so, you know, if progress is our objective, then growth is not always the best way to get there. Now, in terms of in terms of the framing, the narrative, um, the word is um, the word degrowth was intended initially to be a kind of missile word. Like that's that's literally what the founders of the term a couple decades ago intended. They call it a missile word, and the idea is we want to be able to challenge people's deepest assumptions about the economy. Um, and this word does that because it immediately causes you causes a reckoning, right? Now, I, so I didn't invent the word, <laughs> but and and I and I do sometimes feel like well, look, it's quite triggering. Um, and maybe the backlash you get from it um, is is maybe not worth the struggle, but uh, it certainly does stimulate conversations um, and changes people's minds. Although it becomes very contentious, we could call it whatever we want to. Like the important thing is just that we implement the underlying policies, which is to scale down destructive parts of our economy. You know, human development within planetary boundaries. Like, what is this? That's eco-socialism. It's just that for rich countries to achieve an eco-socialist economy requires degrowth, right, requires a downscaling of excess production and consumption. Maybe the best term is eco-socialism. That's the, that's the horizon. And degrowth is simply the means that rich countries need to implement to get there. It's like a means uh, to an end. And surely the word socialism won't be triggering for anyone. I'm sure that will just slip <laughs> under the radar, no problem. <laughs> yeah, no, this is another issue, right? For some people, it's going to be more triggering. For others, it's going to seem irrelevant. Uh, so, whatever way you slice it, it's going to be a hard conversation. I mean, ultimately, you're confronting deep-seated assumptions about the way the world works and should work. And that's going to be difficult. It's like questioning whether the the, the Earth is the center of the universe. Uh, you know, people get excommunicated for that kind of thing. <laughs> Speaking of tough conversations, degrowth seems to be one of the areas within what to do about the big mess, where people who want the same outcome disagree very bitterly. And notwithstanding that we often attack those we perceive to be within our own tent far more than the people outside that we're content to piss out against, it's very deep-seated, the row, isn't it, between people who think, look, you need growth to lift people out of poverty, to reduce growth is almost suicidal economically, but we both want the same thing. Why do you think that those rows, and I won't ask you, because I know you, you get into arguments on Twitter and we don't have, you don't have to, <laughs> you don't have to name each person, um, but is it disagreement about what growth means? Is it disagreement 
about where the growth should occur. Are you actually closer to each other's viewpoints? And if we could all just bloody well meet (laughs) at a conference instead of on social media, you'd actually find you're closer. If you were standing next to each other, you'd find common ground. Mm -hmm. What is it about degrowth that makes stuff so intense? And equally, where do you think you could find common ground in this? Or or is it that we don't have time and we just need to, sorry, sorry, your feelings are hurt, but I believe this, we need degrowth. Yeah, I mean, look, I think social media is sort of terrible. I mean, it's it's really uh, it's really a, a, a big trade off, right? On the one hand, it's it's a way that you know ideas and conversations can happen very quickly. People can follow scientists; they can see what you know what new research is happening, et cetera, et cetera. On the other hand, yeah, it's very difficult to build a, a consensus and common ground on Twitter because it's an intrinsically polarizing medium. Uh, it's almost, I mean, and this is part of Twitter's growth pl- uh, growth. Um, uh, objective, right? Like you, you, you expand through polarization. This is also what Facebook does. Now, yeah, I think that all uh, of those are. Are, points- are you saying that um, and social media is um, harvesting resources, and the resources are sort of us and our rage, and that's the <laughs> um, renewable resource that it thrives upon. But then there is emissions from that as well. <laughs> right. I mean, this is this is just abundantly clear in the in the case of Facebook, right? Where, like, 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 okay, in a capitalist economy, you can't just grow your business. If you're a company like Facebook, you can't just grow to a certain level and be like, okay, we've created something good. Let's do our best to sort of maintain it and keep it healthy, right? Uh, in, in a kind of safe equilibrium. Their growth objective, it's a kind of grow or die thing. It requires them to find ever new ways to expand, get more eyeballs. And so they have to deploy addictive, polarizing algorithms toward that end. And it becomes a really toxic, destructive place, And we, you know, even to the point of wrecking democracies. And so it's a great example, actually, of how growth imperatives end up working against uh, um, you know, human well-being in many respects. Okay, but back to your question. Um, I think that all of these are points of are, are, are potential points of disagreements um, in the in the community, as it were. But you know, maybe one of the big initial misunderstandings that people have is uh, degrowth sounds like you're denying the opportunity for lifting people out of poverty. Okay, now I, I have to emphasize over and over again the the problem with growthism with growthism is a problem only when it comes to rich countries. Clearly, low income countries need to expand economic capacity in order to meet human needs. And this is fine because they're still well within planetary boundaries. I mean, they have very low levels of energy and resource use, right? A fraction of what rich countries use. It's rich countries that are, that are the problem when it comes to ecological breakdown. Rich countries are the ones that need to scale down resource use, and that requires abandoning growth as an objective. Now, the key thing to understand, in which when what most people don't grasp, is that rich countries do not need more growth in order to improve people's lives. And I can't emphasize enough how important this observation is. Past a certain point, which rich countries have long exceeded, the relationship between growth and human well-being breaks down. So take the USA, for example, one of the richest countries in the world in terms of GDP per capita. But Spain beats the USA in terms of social indicators across the board, including a life expectancy that is five years longer with 55% less GDP per capita. Okay. Portugal beats the U.S. with 65% less. Costa Rica beats the U.S. Um, in life expectancy, at least, with 80% less. There are dozens of other examples you know, of countries that, that outperform uh, the U.S. on social indicators with much less income. So what's going on here? Right? Why does this relationship break down? It's because, not surprisingly, there's no causal relationship between commodity production and social indicators. What actually matters 
uh, is how income is distributed, whether people have access to decent wages and livelihoods, and whether they have access to key public goods like housing, education, and healthcare, the stuff that we know is necessary for living well. The crucial thing here is that rich countries don't need more growth, in other words, more commodity production, in order to improve these things. They can do it right now by reducing inequality, sharing existing income more fairly, expanding public services so people have access to the things they need, uh, shortening the working week to maintain full employment, introduce a public job guarantee to ensure that everyone has access to training to participate in the most important regenerative projects in our generation, uh, you know, living wage laws, et cetera, et cetera. Um, these are the things that count when it comes to improving people's lives. And this is why countries like uh, you know, Spain and Portugal beat the USA despite a fraction of the income, right? So the idea here is that rich countries should abandon growth as an objective so that they can focus on reducing resource and energy use. Um, and we know empirically, right, uh, for a fact that high levels of well-being can be achieved with a fraction of the resources and energy that rich countries use if they organize their economies around uh, meeting human needs rather than around elite consumption and capital accumulation. Most people just sort of have this easy assumption that growth is always an improvement when for rich countries, that's just not true. You reach a point where actually you get diminishing returns and then you actually get negative outcomes, right? Like if you were to privatize the UK health service, which is what the conservatives have been trying to do for decades, UK GDP would go up, but people's access to good healthcare would go down, okay? If you privatize the uh, public housing stock, GDP goes up, people's access to housing goes down, right? So there's all sorts of ways where you reach a point of you know, social sabotage, actually. Um, and that's important to recognize. Talking about the number GDP, everybody talks about it. It's entered lexicon and we don't really question it. What's the GDP? It's like the temperature. When you talk about well-being and measuring all of that as a way of arguing to people, if you change what you're what we're doing this metric will go up but uh i'll give you an example a few years ago uh ireland was it appeared quite high up at the list of countries that do good in the world and another list where we were happy and we were furious we're like how dare you accuse us of being happy have you not seen how terrible our government is and how how you know how dysfunctional our this, that, and the other is, you know, third world country. And we're raging at the idea that other people thought us high up in uh, world terms on this metric. That's a big shift in terms of our concept. Like we like to jump on a number. We're like the economy is 30 billion. And this year we're hoping to go to 31 billion. And that's a number. And I've grown up with numbers. How How do you tell me things are better by... Uh, a different metric. Totally, yes. Metrics are everything. So, okay, let's unpack what GDP uh, is about here. This is such an interesting uh, uh, part of the story. So, um, so what does GDP measure? GDP measures actually only a small part of the economy, namely, again, commodity production as measured in terms of prices. So, stuff that's bought and sold for prices. And so, by the way, just to jump in there, commodity is not necessarily barrels of pork on the Chicago futures market right. or iron ore or manganese. It's intangibles as well, is it? Yes. Yeah. Goods and services. So it's, um, so, but, so I use commodity here in the political economy sense, which means uh, anything that uh, has a price on it that's then exchanged on the market. Okay. Whether it's 
uh, massages or uh, barrels of pork, exactly. So the thing about this is that it leaves out all other kinds of value, right? So it leaves out subsistence production, okay, which, um, you know, up until recently, most of the world was engaged in. It leaves out anything you might get from commons. Let's say um, if if you live near a forest and you gather, you know, nuts and fruits from the forest, that's the, the, that doesn't count at all. Um, sharing. So if your neighbor drives you to the airports, um, that doesn't count in GDP. But if you take uh, an Uber, it does. Um, if you build, if you build your own furniture, that does not count in GDP. If you buy it from IKEA, it does. If you take care of your um, own parents and kids, that does not count in GDP. And this is a huge part of the economy, right? Like our economy utterly depends on care rendered for free. Yeah. Um, if you pay an institution to do it for you, then it does count in GDP. Uh, volunteering, nature, ecosystem services, and crucially, public services, like the value we get from public services, um, none of that is counted in GDP, right? So if you buy your so healthcare... The, yeah, so the money spent by the government on providing the healthcare is, that's in GDP, like that's a cost, right. or that's certainly it's on the government accounts, but the value as compared you know, the hospital bed is X in the public system, but if you go through the insurance, suddenly it's 800 quid. That's all exactly. paid for by, exactly. the, you know, taken care of by the insurance. And it feels like a racket. So yes. so the value of the government provision isn't in the GDP as opposed to the actual That's government. exactly right. So the expense the government goes through to supply it is, is included on the expenditure side of GDP, but the value that a user gets from that service is not included in the GDP. Okay. If, the, if the user goes to a private alternative and pays for that service, then that is registered in GDP. And this is why I say the US healthcare system is three times larger in terms of GDP than the UK health, healthcare system, GDP per capita, right? And yet it delivers worse health outcomes, okay? So uh, so you definitely want to be getting your healthcare in the NHS, not a private alternative, even though that value is not captured in the GDP. So the point here is that GDP leaves out all sorts of value that we depend on utterly and which massively improves our lives. Uh, that, and also it does not count the social, the social and ecological costs of commodity production. So if you uh, uh, tear down a forest and sell the timber to Ikea for furniture, GDP goes up, um, but it does not count the cost of, you know, the emissions involved in that, the habitat destruction, the loss of a future resource, et cetera. Or if you privatize the health service, GDP goes up, but it does not count the loss of healthcare access, okay? Or if you extend the working week, make people work longer, GDP goes up, but it does not count the cost to your relationships and your mental health, et cetera. So even the person who invented this measure, Simon Kuznets, back in the 1930s, he warned the US Congress that we should never use it as an indicator of social progress. Uh, to quote him exactly, he said, uh, the welfare of a nation can scarcely be inferred from a measure of national accounts. So calls for more growth should always specify growth of what and for what purpose. And so, and yet here we are nearly a hundred years later doing exactly the opposite of what you said. We use it as a regular instrument of measuring social progress and we never specify what we want more growth of and for what purpose. That um, sounds like the way that sentence that you've quoted has been forgotten kind of sounds like the way the original name and playing of the game Monopoly has been yes, forgotten. Totally. It, it could be played like Monopoly and that was the one everybody wanted whereas the original one was about collaboration and mm. yeah the thing i'm stumbling over there is the history of monopoly which some of you may know 
it was actually came from a game called the Landlord's Game, uh, created by an anti-monopolist, Lizzie Maggie or Meiji, uh, in the early part of the 20th century. So she created a game called the Landlord's Game, which had two sets of rules, an anti-monopolist set where all players were rewarded when wealth was created, and then a monopolist set in which the goal was to create monopolies and crush opponents. And the game kind of didn't do that well, and somebody else found it and patented it, and there's a murky history about how Monopoly actually came to be the game we know now. And But the original set of anti-monopolistic rules was kind of forgotten, and Parker Brothers bought the game's copyrights from a guy... Uh, called Charles Darrow, who coincidentally just played the game at somebody's house in the early 30s. And it kind of took off from there. He made loads of money. Uh, and the woman who started the whole thing off, Lizzie May- Maggie, or Maggie, made $500. Another interesting thing, uh, in 1941, the British, the British Spies Secret Service, they got John Waddington Limited, who were the people who made the game in the UK, to create a special edition for World War II prisoners of war who were held by the Nazis, they shipped out the games and uh, hidden in the games were maps, compasses, real money and other objects useful for escaping, according to Wikipedia. They were distributed to prisoners by fake charity organisations created by the British Secret Service. So anyway, that's what I was wittering on about when I was mentioning Monopoly. Sorry for the whistling in the background there. If you can hear it, uh, the girls have acquired a musical instrument. But that's the story of Monopoly also. just So just look up the Wikipedia page for Monopoly. It's quite interesting. And as always with Wikipedia, do check the references and triangulate and get some other sources as well too, just to be on the safe side. Back to the show. Like there's two reasons that the measure became so popular. A, because it's so simple. Uh, for politicians who are quite simple-minded people, typically, <laughs> to just focus on maximizing that measure. But also B, because obviously capital and elites benefit tremendously, like, tremendously from GDP growth. They, they are the only guaranteed beneficiaries, and they capture the vast majority of the gains from growth. And so getting everybody else to buy into this idea that GDP growth is what we should be pursuing is extremely in their interests. <laughs> now, Okay, so you know, are there alternatives? Yes, there are. They've been developed robustly um, over several over, the, over several decades, actually. So, the most prominent probably is called the Genuine Progress Indicator, which basically starts with GDP and then it um, it uh, it subtracts negative social and ecological uh, costs effectively. Um, and so you get a sense for like, okay, we we have these gains in commodity production. But we also have this loss in terms of human well-being and uh, and, and ecology. Um, so what's a good balance between these two, right? And it, um, it incentivizes you to focus on maximizing human welfare and ecological stability while minimizing the, the costs to that. Um, but there's also, but, you know, ecological economists also propose um, a, a more dashboard approach. Like, let's recognize that not everything can be captured in a single metric. And let's talk instead about multiple objectives we want to achieve. If we want to improve wages and improve health and, and mental well-being and housing, then let's focus on doing those directly um, rather than you know, just growing the aggregate GDP and hoping magically it solves the problems that we want to address, right? which is an insane approach. Um, 
So let's let's have let's let's have a, a dashboard that focuses on the the social objectives and also the ecological objectives we want to to achieve. And so instead of um, you know every year announcing what the GDP figures are, let's announce what the biodiversity figures are, what the emissions figures are, what the um, you know what the uh, uh, the life expectancy figures are. So we get a whole perspective on what's happening in our in our society and how we need to change it, um, rather than hiding everything behind this. Uh, this really problematic indicator. Going back to the people who, there's obviously people who just want growth for growth's sake. They want to accumulate wealth and they may or may not be megalomaniac billionaires who want to be the first trillionaire or the fifth billionaire into space, leaving them to one side. But there are a lot of very smart, caring people who believe we can grow our way out of this and disagree fundamentally with you. And as we were talking about earlier, maybe the media the medium of how we communicate hasn't been helped by nearly nearly 20 months of enforced separation. How do you meet in the middle the people that may, they may even be colleagues of yours, people you've worked with on other stuff, maybe people that you respect for all sorts of other reasons, but you fundamentally disagree that growth on whether growth is the way forward or degrowth is the new paradigm. How far apart are you, do you think? in terms of, is it nuance? Is it uh, completely ideology? Is it misunderstanding? Just going back to that one. Yeah, okay. So you basically mean like the green growth, degrowth arguments effectively? Um, yeah. Yeah, so uh, I, I think it really varies. Like there are, there's like a certain faction of people who um, who, fundam- who fundamentally believe that uh, that's, acceleration is like what we should do and forget about ecology right so so the the most important thing is um is to accelerate capitalism and you know if that leads to ecological destruction in the global south then so be it okay i mean this is like the extreme view i think most people are somewhere more moderate than that which is basically um we just believe that uh technological innovation is going to get us out, out of this mess and i think that's a very again a very compelling narrative and one that's easy to just um, to just kind of be lulled by, right? Um, what were is, this- that, is that narrative based on? Look all through history. Uh, we used to plow this much with our fingernails. <laughs> then we then we we made some flint. Then we tamed horses, which you know, which had been happily. Right. You know, we grew into the horse taming space. Then we grew into the steam <laughs> engine, and we increased our productivity and this is a line history is linear it's not uh you know it's not it's not the end of history but it continues on you make something you use your brain and maths and engineering and you make a thing faster and better and this is a continuation of that with nuance but still in that area I'm not going out pulling weeds by hand again, like I did when I was uh, a child, you know, although actually I probably would for mindfulness training, but you know, <laughs> it's, it goes in a particular direct that's so that we're talking, say the, the technologist's view, it has worked before. Uh, why won't it work again? Yeah. So, it, so is it that it actually, it didn't work before the way you thought it did or no, the thing is it's different now. History is not a line. We have come to a cliff and, Things have to change, so we we need to keep all our all the gear, all the technology we have already, and the efficiencies. But we can't go any further, 
and some of those fields are going to have to be cut by hand. Like, <laughs> no, no. So let me let me sort of explain my position here. Um, yeah, I, I'm not against technology. In fact, I'm I'm a technologist, and I'm very optimistic about what te- what technology has and can achieve in the future. What I want to argue is that the growth imperative works against our technological innovation. Okay, so when you go back and say, you know, we used to uh, dig in the soil and then, you know, with our fingernails and then we invented plows and so on, right? This is clearly a technological innovation. Whether or not that counts as growth is a different question. Okay, so I think we should not confuse the two. Um, Again, and and this is crucial, like, okay, so when it comes to the question of climate, for example, for sure, efficiency improvements can dramatically reduce, you know, all, all else being, uh, being equal, can reduce uh, energy intensity and um, can reduce uh, emissions intensity of our economy. And we should celebrate that and pursue it, but recognize that growth is making it more difficult for us to achieve that objective because the gains get wiped out by the scale effect of expansion, okay? So, um, so if we want technological innovation to work the way that we expect, then what I propose is we get rid of growth as an objective and focus on the innovation itself. Okay. Now, crucially, there are lots of ways in which the growth imperative works against innovation in terms of the actual technical dimensions of it. So take Apple, for example. Okay. Apple products are very clearly designed to break down or become useless after a relatively short period of time. And this is particularly true of smartphones. Okay. Now, it would not be difficult for Apple to innovate. Um, modular upgradable devices that are easily repairable and recyclable Um, and yet they don't do that because that kind of innovation while it might meet human needs and improve our technology works against apple's growth imperative and so they're incentivized by growthism to uh to de-emphasize innovations that would be quite useful in favor of of innovations that are actually against our our interests okay Um, and, uh, and that's, you know, so planned obsolescence is an amazing example of how innovation under capitalism quite often is not really innovation at all, except for innovation in sort of a bad way. Um, yeah. or, or take so sort of financial or accounting innovation, really, isn't it? Because it's yeah. about how you recognize what you do on your in your accounts, how you rec- how you reflect what you do in your account. So, exactly. so you know, fixing stuff uh, isn't as good as shipping units, I presume, in for the share price are the balance sheet. That's exactly right. Yeah. So the value that we would get from a modular, upgradable, repairable device would not be reflected in Apple's profits, which is all that matters. So it's not right. And so it's so so innovations that we actually really need might not be reflected in GDP. Um, uh, in fact, the two might work against each other. So um, you know, the vaccines are another good example of this. Um, largely developed by you know significantly developed by public funding. Um, uh, captured by corporate patents, uh, and then the, the pharma comp- companies then basically say, "Look, we're not going to waive the patents because that would reduce our profit margins." Right um, now, now that actually works against innovation. If you waive the, pat- the patents, expands um, access to them, then not only do you vaccinate the whole world in a short period of time, ex- you know, um, but also you create possibilities for more innovation based on those those findings. Right, like open access is important for innovation. Um, corporations lock down knowledge, put science behind paywalls to prevent that kind of uh, that kind of innovation. Like it's, it's remarkable, we're a, we're a society that celebrates science, you know, science and innovation and knowledge, and yet at every opportunity, capital tells us we have to lock it up 
so other people can't build on that. That is that's to me anti-progress and anti-innovation. So my, and our, my presumably my, even self-destructive from a a growth, but I guess it's where the growth is measured. If it's the it's the, for the company's point of view, that's that's all they care about is right. their growth. Uh, which brings me actually to a question about kind of just bringing it back to the maths of it in a little way. Um, like when we talk about growing, say Ireland as a country, we, you know, our aim is to economically grow and, and any any country does. But how we measure it, stuff comes in, stuff goes out. Um, we see ourselves as a kind of a closed system, don't we? And and doesn't our how we measure impacts of our lives really depend on where you set the border for your system like the so when you talk about what's the equation of a country's economy and its growth Mm. uh they buy in a load of stuff and that's a number Mm. they operate on it and spend x amount of money paying people to do something and then they sell it and so that so hopefully the thing on the right the sale price should be greater than the inputs and therefore that's a profit countries doing well companies doing well but if the costs were you know like let's say you pay somebody to get rid of your unused fast fashion or your unused technology and you've paid them and that's fine that's a cost but if they dump it in dakar and senegal that's not a cost so therefore that's not in the equation like in terms of how we measure things we don't measure all the the out, the outputs and the costs either do we yes that's exactly right yeah yes and i'm so glad you you raised the interconnectedness of the global economy here because this really falls out of the picture okay so i i mentioned in the beginning that ecological breakdown is basically happening along colonial lines uh now the underlying mechanism here is the fact that growth in rich nations so the global north the former colonial powers the west whatever you might want to say um is is heavily reliant on a process of net appropriation of resources uh, from the global south, uh, resources and labor, right? Productive capacity in the global south, and and that net flow, okay, is uh, is facilitated by price inequalities in international trade and supply chains. So, for example, if you're a rich country, your objective, or a rich a rich corporation in the west, your objective is to depress the prices of resources and labor in the global south, and what that means is that then in international trade. For every unit that the South imports from the North, they have to export many more times to pay for it. Okay, so this leads to a net outflow from South to North, um, and it, it is massive. So the, the most recent data we have on this shows that um, the uh, you know the, the handful of countries that comprise the global North rely on a net appropriation of uh, ten to twelve billion tons of of raw materials embodied in traded goods every year. Um, that's double the total mass of resources extracted from the continent of Africa each year, net flow from south to north. Um, 23 exajoules of embodied energy. That's five times more than Iran's total annual production of oil. Huge quantity of energy. 800 million hectares of embodied land. So that's land twice the size of India um, used for goods that are net that are uh, involved in a net flow from south to north. Okay, so uh, can you just to jump in? Yeah. Just the word embodied there. What you mean by that? So, so obviously, I'll say what the exajoules are the land. Right. So obviously, the um, the land itself is not flowing from south to north, but the land is involved in the production of commodities, say uh, strawberries or cotton or um, you know uh, cell phones. 
that um, that are flowing from south to north, right? So every time um, the U.S. imports an iPhone from China, which is where it's produced, then it's also importing um, materials extracted from the Congo, uh, you know, the coltan, for example, uh, steel extracted from China, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Like all of all of those materials are embodied in the products that the north um, consumes. So we have to think about the footprints of that consumption, and we can think about that in net terms. That's what I'm talking about here. Um, so now this enables us to think, right? Um, what could that lands and energy, et cetera, be used for in the South? Um, that amount of lands w- would be enough to provide nutritious food for more than 4 billion people, okay? But instead, it's used to produce things like sugar for Coca-Cola and beef for McDonald's consumed in the global North. That amount of energy could provide electricity for 1.5 billion people. Um, that's the population of Africa while powering infrastructure for public health care, education, transportation, internets, for all of those people. But instead, it's used to power SUVs in you know, Europe. Okay, So that, that's so, what we're talking so about. The, the net. So if, you, if we even just, even though we think we give this global south aid, when in fact we're extracting way, way more, but if we just leveled yes. it, didn't even give them any aid, but stopped stealing, the amount of that difference would do so much to lift the global south out of poverty without any additional climate impact exactly exactly so give or give or take gross simplifications of, yes no 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 it's massive so, or whatever so um so there's a paper that we're just completing right now um where we calculate this and we find that the value of net appro- the the market price in northern prices of net appropriated resources from the south um equates to around $10 trillion per year, right? That's an extraordinary amount of money, which um, if we think of that as representing economic capacity, uh, would be enough to end global poverty 70 times over. I mean, it's- And it's it's like a sixth of all the money in, that's made in the world, isn't it? Isn't the, isn't the world 60 trillion or something? Yeah, around 80 trillion, yeah. So it's quite, it's, um, it's, a, it's a huge proportion. Uh, and so, look, the, the, the basic picture we have to understand here is this. Like, you're right. We have this narrative that rich countries give benevolently of aid to poor countries and so on. This narrative is totally, totally wrong, has been empirically debunked for a very long time. Um, in reality, there's a net flow of resources, um, embodied labor, and even uh, f- and even finance, right, in the form of tax evasion, et cetera, et cetera, money flowing from the south to the north, a net flow. So the South is developing the North, right? <laughs> um, and even Ireland, our dirty little secret is our tax. How much money is funneled through Ireland that should be paid in taxes from Zambian copper mines. Precisely. And that kind of interconnectedness, even though even in orders in shops like Kenyan, Kenyan fruit and veg, in that example where we're buying that stuff, what would you say to so in the in the example of say getting strawberries from Kenya for argument's sake is the answer to pay more for Kenyan strawberries to just use our own strawberries and eat in season to you know because obviously there are Kenyan strawberry growers and I know this is such a small example and we're talking about huge system change but that's the kind of thing people fixate on and in in a in a, unequal world, Bangladeshi garment workers are Kenyan strawberry harvesters. What should they be doing instead? Because at the moment, they do earn a wage in an unequal world. And to willy-nilly cancel those contracts is in itself a damage. And I presume that goes 
probably to one of the challenges of the degrowth message is where do you start or how do you start without hurting poor people if you're Mm. trying to change a system which is flawed, unequal, extractive, but also has lots of innocent actors within it who earn wages. Yes, exactly. So, um, yeah, the, the best way to understand this is this, right, is that the, the South's vast reserves of resources and labor are being mobilized right now around servicing Northern consumerism when they could be used to meet local human needs. Okay, so think about that land I mentioned, land twice the size of India, that could, that could that's presently being used for sugar, you know, uh, strawberries, whatever it might be for northern consumption, but could be used to provide nutritious food um, for uh, for the global south population and so on. Okay, so um, now, uh, yes, of course, like um, in answer to your question, all of the above, in the sense of what's the response to this? You you, you know, uh, in the global south, economists have for a very long time been saying, look, um, you know, end this imperial pattern of appropriation release uh, our countries from ext- from northern extractivism so that we can focus on on human development right uh, um, and so that you know this has been a demand from the south you, you can read for example the, the Cochabamba statements the people's agreement of Cochabamba signed in 2010 by social by hundreds thousands of social movements from across the global south demanding that the north decolonize their ecosystems and the atmosphere from this these patterns of net appropriation. Okay. Could you say that word just for people to Google uh, or spell it out so they can find out more? Cotra Bamba. How do you spell that? Yes. C O C H uh, A B A M B A. Cotra Bamba, like the, okay. the city in Bolivia. Okay. Um, uh, it's it's a foundational text in uh, in sort of the climate movements, um, but is almost entirely ignored by the global north because it it points out that you know, that, the, that the, the crisis of ecological breakdown is ultimately a crisis of imperial extraction. Um, and they call for an anti-imperial struggle, uh, in, you know, in response. Um, and that, that, of course, is almost entirely ignored by our, by our media discourse in the global north and even by our environment, um, environmentalist movement. It's a big problem. But, but to your question, yeah, I mean, the main thing, like the reason you have this net, this, this net flow is because of price inequalities. So the solution is that prices should be equalized. How do you ensure that? Well, uh, you know, you need fair trade rules. You need to allow global South countries to use instruments like tariffs and subsidies to build their domestic uh, capacity to compete effectively with the global North and drive their own prices up. They should be able to establish, um, you know, uh, cooperation agreements with each other in order to keep prices at a fair level. All of this is basically denied under the World Trade Organization uh, um, and under the World Bank and IMF rules. Uh, not surprisingly, because the World Bank and the IMF are colonial institutions where um, the G7 controls the majority of the voting power, right? I, I mean, the Global South is integrated into these institutions on very unequal terms um, so that, I mean, in such a way that the rules end up being set in favor of the richest, most powerful economies on the planet and against those uh, those countries that are poor. So we need we need to, you know, we need a fair global economic system. And this demand has been in place for decades from the global south, but it just continues to be ignored again in our discourse in the north. So, um, so, so degrowth really is, in a way, it's like a demand for decolonization. And I think this is such an important part of the term. In fact, it's almost impossible to understand why it's so important unless you approach it from the global south perspective, uh, right? Recognize that ecological breakdown is destroying the very possibility for your existence in the global south 
you know, it's causing hunger rates to rise, mass human displacement in drought-stricken areas, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and also is being driven by excess consumption in the North, which is being appropriated from your own ecosystem base. Um, if you were in that position, you'd be calling for degrowth too. <laughs> so I think it's really important to bring that perspective into the conversation. If you have invested in something and it is very much linked to growth, growth in demand for your stuff, and particularly now in far- farming is probably one way because they've they will be asked to reduce the herd. And uh, Irish farmers would have a particular view about because animals are out in grass and, you know, they don't, they're not as damaging. Uh, so they're going to reduce. So let's say they're told to reduce their herd, whereas Brazil will fill up, will take up the slack. Right. And uh, and sure, why wouldn't they? Like it's an opportunity, an economic opportunity. And Brazil, you know, their emissions per head is much lower than Ireland. So we're in no position to criticize. But when it comes to the conversation about Here's why we need to do something. And there's no there's no guarantee everybody will jump at the same time. So nobody wants to be the first because it offers economic, potentially economic advantage to a bad or neutral actor. Like as the message, like things need to change or we need to stop growth for growth's sake. What is the challenge in talking to people in countries like Ireland, uh, who are not wealthy, mm. but they're definitely wealthy by global terms, but they're on, I don't know, 30, 50,000 euro a year and feel stressed by the stresses of modern life and certainly totally. would love to feel empathy with the global South. The challenge in in just changing that outlook, when you're trying to talk about this, what what do you say to people who could very easily say, look, I just don't have the money to do what you think should be done. Yeah, no, I mean, look, there, this is a great example, actually. Even in the richest countries in the world, we have a situation where people are struggling to get by. I mean, the US is an amazing example of this. Poverty in the US is extremely high. Um, you know, around half the population, if they end up in, uh, in a medical emergency, that could put them into debt for the rest of their lives. It could ruin them. Um, so, you know, be, being a rich country is no guarantee that you'll have solved your social problems because under capitalism, that's not really an objective. You know, the objective is, um, is uh, you know, accumulation, is elite accumulation, effectively. That's what it's about. Uh, so what we're calling for is fundamental shifts in how the economy is organized, not just less of the same economy, which would clearly be a disaster. That's just a recession, okay? And recessions, as we know, you know, hurt people. That's not what we're calling for. And that's why we have a different word, okay? Um, uh, degrowth is, uh, is, is a shift to a different kind of economy altogether, one that does not require additional growth to meet people's needs at a high level. So with the policies we call for, you know, living wages, shorter working weeks, public job guarantees, an expansion of universal public services, um, greater equality, uh, longer lasting products, uh, you know, secure livelihoods, um, most people will benefit substantially from these policies and they will be better off in their experience of life. Now, granted, there will be less aggregate commodity consumption uh, and there will be, crucially, no billionaires, okay? Because we're dramatically reducing inequality and distributing income a lot more and and wealth a lot more fairly. Um, And so the people that really stand to lose uh, are are the rich, are the elite. 
Um, and, and that is really where the backlash comes from, okay? Uh, degrowth poses a direct existential challenge to elite accumulation. Uh, but the majority of, po- of the population in Ireland and the UK would benefit significantly under these policies because, and this is what I, I, I talk about at length and less is more, um, these policies would improve the welfare purchasing power of income, okay? You would be like on the same income you have now, you'd be able to access so much more in terms of what counts for your well-being because your housing would be more affordable. You would have free higher education, for example. You'd have robust, high-quality public transportation, et cetera. Um, so you have a kind of, this kind of public luxury that is denied to people right now precisely because of the growth imperative because that stuff doesn't count when it comes to growthism. Uh, so we want to focus on on expanding those bits that actually matter for people's lives. Um, now, and so the question becomes, you know, how do you how do you get there? Uh, and I think that, and this directly answers your question as well. Like, um, what becomes crucial here is not the environmentalist movement itself. The environmentalist movement does not have the kind of power to make this happen. It, we need an alliance with the labor movements, with working class formations. Um, who really have the skin in the game, okay? Um, and, and the objective here should be to establish a social guarantee that takes the question of livelihoods off the table, okay? So again, with the policies I've called for, universal public services, living wages, shorter working week, public job guarantee, et cetera. Once and I presume, qu- I presume yeah. by livelihood, do you mean like incomes up to a certain level that should be enough? Is that like... Yeah, like what's, be... like what's necessary for and associated with high levels of well-being, right? Yeah. Um, like, uh, you know, again, like, like $1 does not always mean the same quantity of welfare purchasing power. It, you know, $1 in the USA doesn't, you know, buys a lot less healthcare and education than $1 in Finland uh, because the Finnish education and healthcare systems are decommodified, okay? So um, decommodification begins an important way of expanding people's access to the goods they need to live well. This is not to say that everything would be, de- would be decommodified. Clearly, we still need market, uh, you know, like a, a market section of the economy. But key goods that people need for well-being should be decommodified. And that includes things like water, energy, internet, um, as well as the obvious ones, you know, housing, public transportation, uh, and education and healthcare. Um, so, so you basically want a social guarantee to be established. Take the, questions of, the question of livelihoods off the table. And once that's the case, then we can have a conversation about what sectors of the economy, uh, you know, we can scale down without worrying about hurting anybody. Whereas right now, if you were to scale down any sector of the, of the economy, then, you know, workers lose their jobs, have, you know, poverty goes up, people get screwed, right? So, you know, and you're, not gonna, you're not going to save the planet. And you're not going to save that planet. anyway. You know, this is why the, the, the social policy side of degrowth uh, thought is so important um, because without that, then it, you know, this is effectively the way you manage a safe and just uh, landing, as it were, right? Um, which is in contrast to say what Macron did in France by jacking up fuel taxes that ended up hurting working class people in the in the rural areas who rebelled against the policy. These people actually uh, support climate action, um, but they don't want the climate action to be balanced on the backs of working class misery, right? So. So, um, and, and this is why we were very focused on the question of social policy, or that needs to be established first. And of course, like the poor simply do not do as much damage per person. Like even if their heating is inefficient or they might be in an old diesel car, they just don't consume as much. 
it might look sometimes like it's not all uh, solar panels and, uh, you know, room for a windmill. But I presume that's a fairly basic rule, is it, that income and carbon are very much linked with the odd exception? It's a very, very strong rule. It's a very strong rule. And in fact, so I, I go on a lot about how the crisis is being caused by rich countries, not poor countries. But within rich countries, the crisis is being caused by um, rich individuals and capitalism in general, rather than poor individuals in the working class, right? So, um, you know, even to the extent that you're talking about uh, working class people, you know, drive cars to get to work, they don't have a choice for that. They literally, like, in this system, which denies them access to decent public transportation. They have no choice but to drive a car to get to work in order to survive, right? So what, how could you possibly blame working class families for doing something like that, aside from the fact that their consumption levels are much lower in the first place, right? It doesn't make any sense. So it, it, sounds, know, the, like, um, it sounds like within carbon footprint, we need to talk about discretionary, like the numbers that matter. If my carbon footprint is, is 100, how much of that do I have no choice over and therefore should, while I should be encouraged to try to reduce the 75% that I have no choice over, I certainly shouldn't be punished for it. It's the 25% where I'm taking the piss <laughs> is, where, is where the focus should be, I presume. But that doesn't, we don't see that nuance, do we, in terms of discretionary carbon and insofar as carbon is a measure of damage, there's lots of other things wrong with the planet yeah, so I mean, look, measured in carbon in carbon in the atmosphere. That's right. So, so look, I mean, it's very well established that the real drivers of uh, consumption-based ecological damage are rich are rich people, and this is why, you know, you know Thomas Piketty, uh, who's a very famous and hardly like a radical leftist economist, has pointed out very clearly, and in, in, in no uncertain terms, uh, he, he says. Um, the single most powerful climate policy would be to curtail the, the purchasing power of the rich, basically reduce rich people's incomes, you know, and any policy that, that works towards that end is going to be effective. And so, and this is what degrowth calls for, a massive redistribution of income away from elite uh, accumulation and consumption and towards uh, public investments and working class wages. So, um, you know, that's, that's the way the calculus works. Uh, but again, like to your, to your to your question, I think that I would advise against thinking about it in terms of consumption. Really, like I I really do think we have to focus here on the economic system as a whole, and we have an economic system that requires perpetual uh, increases in production, and then in order to, and then has to find ways to mop that up, right? And so there's pressure on people to then consume the stuff that gets produced in the system uh, through advertising, through planned obsolescence, and so on. It's not like we really have a choice in that. Uh, like we're manipulated on a daily basis in order to uh, to to sort of mop up overproduction in, in capitalist society, and that's what we want to stop. Ultimately, that's what matters. Finally, what makes you optimistic? You know, obviously, you have to read some pretty depressing stuff in your job. What kind of gives you <laughs> cause for cheer? Yeah, uh, it, it's a very depressing media landscape out there, and people are increasingly saying things like. Uh, what you know, staying under 1.5 degrees is now impossible, um, and and that is becoming an increasingly widespread opinion. But uh, but I'll tell you something. Uh, what what gives me hope is the fact that um, that uh, that it is only impossible if we start from the assumption that rich countries need to keep growing. Uh, if we abandon that assumption, we can achieve our climate gro- uh, our climate goals uh, in time, and that is uh, yeah an extremely hopeful proposition. So. I see degrowth as 
as uh, as you know liberating in this key respect. Like if we can just change our assumption, our, this one core assumption about how economies run, uh, then we have a shot at ecological stability while also um, meeting human needs at a high level and improving uh, people's lives. And that that to me is a brilliant proposition that we should embrace and be excited about, um, rather than the the doomism that suggests we're we're um, you know, we're headed for 1.5, 2 degrees, even 3 degrees, and there's nothing we can do about it simply because we take for granted that the economy must grow at all costs. It's crazy. So, um, yeah, so I think that there's a lot of possibility here that is, um, that is capturing imaginations and is, very, is a really, uh, you know, lively space right now. Uh, what also gives me hope, and I guess this is really more of a point about strategy, um, is is what I see as the potential of of, uh, of social movement alliances. Okay, so I mentioned earlier that there's no way that the environmentalist movement can ever hope to accomplish the kind of economic transition that we're calling for alone, but they can, in alliance with working class movements and unions and so on. Um, uh, now, of course, this this requires a shift in the mindset of unions. R- right now, unions basically call for more growth. Uh, because they believe that's the best way to, in, you know, improve wages and uh, improve people's livelihoods and so on. <clears throat> um, the argument to them needs to be: um, Why would we align with the interests of capital to improve uh, to improve workers' well-being? This is not what unions should be doing. There's supposed to be an antagonism uh, against capitalism, calling for a fair, more just system. So let's do that. Let's call directly for uh, you know a shorter working week, a public job guarantee to eliminate the question of unemployment altogether, demand living wages, reduced inequality, expansion of public services. This is what working class movements want to achieve. Let us align with them. They align with the environmentalist movement in turn, uh, calling for um, a transition to uh, to um, to ecological policy. So we achieve eco-social goals in this um, in this collaboration. That and the importance of connecting with existing uh, um, social movements in the global south, um, you know, the organizations behind the Cochabamba uh, agreements, uh, La Via Campesina, which is um, a mass movement of peasant farmers around the world, the Land Back Campaign, which is indigenous communities um, calling for decolonization. Um, these movements are are focused on precisely these problems. Um, and alliance with them is, is potentially very powerful. That should be part of our conversation to bring the question of imperialism and decolonization into the equation. Uh, um, and crucially, you know, movements from the global south have always been the ones that have been most effective at changing the world economy. Think of the, um, the anti-colonial movements, which was easily uh, the most dramatic transition in global economics in the past, in the past century or so. Um, that's the power of 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 uh, collective struggle um, that recognizes international uh, alliances, and I think that's exactly the kind of thing that we need when it comes to. And, and that wasn't an, that wasn't an inevitability, was it? We take it as a fait accompli. If you were educated, you know, if you went to school after, say, in the eighties and nineties, it was just a thing in the history books, like it just happened. But presumably, that wasn't guaranteed. Nineteen. 19- Say in 1910, there was no way you'd say that by 1950, most places would have uh, shaken off at least a political colonialism. Right. Yes, exactly. Um, I mean, yeah, it, it was not, and it was not handed down, you know, by benevolent colonial powers either. I mean, this was fought for in brutal uh, struggle uh, o- over the course of decades, uh, which required careful organizing 
Um, and so, yeah, the, to me, these are the movements that we, we should look to, the anti-colonial movements, the abolitionist movements, the civil rights movements, um, you know, the, the women's suffrage movements, I mean, the democracy movement more, broad, more broadly. Um, these, you know, these kinds of movements have always been the ones that have delivered social progress um, to us. It's never been handed down by capital or by elites. And that is the kind of struggle that this crisis is going to require in response. Uh, if we don't recognize that dynamic, then I'm afraid that we are, we are lost. And so that's where, for me, hope lies. So there is some hope. So you're saying there's a chance. As they say in, <laughs> I'm telling you the there's films. a chance. <laughs> yeah. Uh, what are you working on at the moment, by the way? Oh, yeah. Um, well, we've been discussing uh, those patterns of, of net flows, the, uh, the, uh, the unequal exchange in the world economy. I've been writing a bit more about that. So there's some publications on this coming down the pipeline. So look forward to, uh, to that. Okay. Hopefully another blockbuster uh, or <laughs> a, a summer beach read. Right. Uh, Dr. Jason Heckel, thank you very much. Thanks very much. Right. How do you like them apples? There's quite a lot of big talk in that discussion, isn't there? And as we chatted in the podcast, some people get very angry about the idea of degrowth. But hopefully you will know a bit more now about the nuance of it, even if you still aren't convinced. But that's fine. It's just an hour. Just to give you something else to think about. Also, Jason sent me on some stuff afterwards just to expand on one thing he said towards the end where he was talking about taking livelihoods off the table. So if you have an extra minute or two, I'll read out what he's saying because we were talking about the question of who loses money when you stop growing certain parts of an economy. So if you were to stop growing or scale down specific industries, this would result in loss of jobs and income, he says. Uh, And this can be prevented he reckons, by shortening the working week and distributing the necessary labour more evenly, introducing a public job guarantee to maintain full employment and to ensure people have access to the training they need to participate in key public projects like renewable energy deployment, infrastructure development, ecological regeneration, etc. Uh, Also, establishing living wage rules, expanding access to public services in order to ensure that people are able to access the resources they need to live good lives without needing ever-rising incomes in order to do so. All of this would take the question of livelihoods off the table in the sense that people would no longer have to worry about economic security and making ends meet. This would free us to have an open conversation about shifting beyond growth and scaling down problem industries without worrying about how it about how it might affect people's livelihoods. So I'm including that bit because, look, um, if the scientists, if what the scientists, 99% of the scientists are saying is true, we have not a whole lot of time left. So I didn't want to waste too much time with leaving anything to misinterpretation. So just threw in that clarification there. So thanks to all of you for listening. And thanks in general to everybody who listens to all the episodes and those who share and review and please if you haven't done so before it would be great if you could like and subscribe and throw in an owl few stars into your review uh, and give nice reviews if you if you agree if you don't I suggest you take it up with the podcast ombudsman and uh, also thanks to most recent reviewer CJ Hazlitt I think who was saying Uh, He really liked it. He wishes I would do more episodes. And yes, so do I. I really need to grow exponentially the number of episodes I do. And hopefully over the next few weeks and months, you will see that. 
We've got some interesting stuff coming up. I recorded a live episode in front of actual real live people in a venue. A venue, for those of you who are uh, relatively young, a venue is a place where you used to go to stuff. And there would be a stage, which is a raised area, and there would be things happening on the stage. So me and Dr. Kevin Mitchell, who's a neuroscientist, recorded a podcast in front of real people at the Kilkenny Cat Laughs summer series. Wasn't very summery and wasn't strictly speaking comedy, but the people seemed to like it. Uh, We did that uh, last week and it was about the mathematics and the science of free will and whether we have any control over our actions or whether we are just stardust uh, doing the stardust things, bounce atoms bouncing off each other, doing uh, what was preordained from the start of the Big Bang. So, you know, classic music hall roustabout banter there. And the audience, I think, liked it. And I spoke to people afterwards and their heads were spinning. And that's fine too. Mine was as well. Mine was actually melted. But sometimes it's a nice feeling when you are just challenged by the bigness of the thoughts that are being discussed and you know like if there is no such thing as free will then it doesn't matter whether (laughs) whether we did it or not because it would have happened anyway but have a listen to that in a few weeks time that's kevin mitchell talking about free will so for now from the function room thanks a million again to dr jason hickel and goodbye that come from uh who's that sorry one sec yeah no problem Billy. your swimming suit one sec sorry jason one sec. no problem is it not downstairs no or is that a different one which one is yours man? is that yours is that ruby that's ruby don't take these two down no me maybe it's downstairs man is it I'll check the ages. All right. I think there's other swimming suits downstairs, though, Pat, is there? Sorry, there. Got a glimpse into our uh, overconsumption swimsuits. <laughs> um.